Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This episode is sponsored by Minima.Global and Circle. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to The Hash live on Coindesk TV. Happy Friday. We are here to cap off one of the more crazy weeks in crypto history. I'm Zach Seward. That's Jensen Assey. Adam Levine on the right. Let's get to it. In a shocking turn of events, FTX Crypto Exchange filed for bankruptcy protection this morning. This was a rapid unraveling of what had been emerging as one of the key pillars of the crypto economy and after much back and forth involving a potential takeover bid by Binance, a potential rescue by the likes of Justin Sun and others, CEO Sam Bankman-Fried is filing for bankruptcy protection, Chapter 11, and resigning as CEO. A lot to unpack here, but it looks like we may be entering a period of, of long, drawn-out, stuck funds for depositors on FTX.com. Should also be noted that FTX US was included in this filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, despite some initial words from Sam Beckman-Fried yesterday that FTX US would be spared from this quote shit show. All right, Adam, I'm tossing it to you. What are your thoughts on this being official? It seemed as though things were careening rapidly toward this outcome, and indeed, it looks like that has come to pass. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that what we're seeing here is a repetition of the same cycle that we've seen with other high-profile insolvencies over the course of the last year, which really is that there is a strong incentive to sugarcoat things and to lie until you absolutely cannot do so any longer. I think the FTX US inclusion within this bankruptcy proceeding, which included, I was, I was surprised to see a shocking 132 entities at least that are wrapped up in this bankruptcy, including the U.S. arm of the exchange, which Bankman-Fried had recently said was entirely solvent and had all the funds to back it. That, again, really, I think, caps it off. You know, when, when you are in one of these positions, I thankfully have never been and I will never be, <laughs> I can't imagine the amount of stress that, that a person must be under at that point. And it just seems like 
like if what you're trying to do there, you, you can think about it from an incentives perspective. If what if what Bankman-Fried was attempting to do was attempting to find some way, any way to avoid this outcome, then then simply acknowledging the depth of what had actually happened here and what was likely to happen in a bankruptcy scenario would have sealed the fate of all of it. It would have taken away the opportunity to potentially fix it. The challenge, of course, is that by the time you get to this point where you're trying to you know, keep confidence up, whether you're talking about the Terra ecosystem, the Celsius ecosystem, or now FTX, among others, it's just too late, right? Like it's, it's just too late. And at that point, you have no good options. And it seems like, you know, again, declaring bankruptcy as fast as possible perhaps is the best one. One of the other things that I uh, saw this morning, I don't know if this is confirmed, is that FTX has opened up some withdrawals specifically for entities based out of the Bahamas area, which in practice is a really sort of sleazy thing, I think, to do right now. You know, I'm unclear kind of what the details are about that. Again, we're going to learn a lot more as we get into bankruptcy, kind of the bankruptcy proceedings as we did with these prior ones. But again, a lot of, lot of wrong stuff going on here. A lot of people hurting today. Zach, back to you. Yeah, just a quick point for us, Officer Jen. Uh, the stuff that I saw, at least according to FTX, was that the Bahamas stuff was in accordance with local regulations. It's my understanding that withdrawals are being processed from FTX.us, at least intermittently as we speak. And yeah, there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on. But Jen, over to you. Yeah, I want to talk about SBF statements, right? These statements have been, being been, the statements have been released on Twitter. It started about a week ago with SBF saying, everything is fine. Your assets are fine. We open up Twitter today. We have SBF saying that he's piecing the details together. He's still in shock to see that this unraveled the way it did. But as we start to learn more about the poor business practices that led to what has happened this week, I don't think you can say you're in shock. I, and, and I've said this, you know, with some of the other liquidations we've happened, some of the other companies that have filed for bankruptcy and issued similar statements. It's just so unfortunate that these CEOs, they're, they're, it's like they're saying sorry, but, you know, it's not really my fault because I didn't know. And not acknowledging the fact that we have a lot of facts now. We're starting to understand and see what was going on behind the scenes. And that's just not the case. You took a lot of risk that in the end, you and the companies that you led could not handle. And I would just love to see some of that acknowledgement because there are a lot of people who are feeling the knock-on effects of this. Zach? Yeah. So in the long term, I guess let's hope that this leads to a better market overall, right? An ecosystem that mm -hmm. is uh, predicated on fairness, transparency, and some of the promises of commerce free of intermediaries that often tends to lead to outcomes such as this. But in the short term, there's just a lot of pain, not even talking about sort of market movements right now with Bitcoin and other major assets falling pretty sharply. But we're talking about users whose funds are stuck for potentially a protracted period of time. We're talking about employees who were literally blindsided by this news shaking out over the last couple of days, employees of FTX who are now out on their own looking for what is going to be their next step, potentially also with significant savings attached to the platform. Now they enter the queue of creditors going forward. So I think in the long term, hopefully this is a positive thing for the industry and for the space. But in the short term, I think we have to be really empathetic to the users and employees of this platform who are really feeling a bit lost right now after a very rapid situation unfolded this week. So thinking of those folks who are directly affected, but again, hopefully this battle tests the crypto industry as a whole over the long run. Adam, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, so I think there's one other element of this that's probably worth focusing on right now, which is that this story is probably not over. You know, this is FTX declaring bankruptcy along with many of its affiliated entities. But there are a lot of projects out there that really viewed FTX as the safest place to custody a lot of this, a lot of their their funds. Those funds are now locked in a process that if, you know, past uh, examples, they filed in the U.S. at least, which is better than filing in Japan, which has a very, very drawn out process. But still, this is something that is likely to cause cascading insolvencies. This is something where we will very likely find counterparties who had lent money to one of these various entities and who now have a big giant hole in their balance sheets. And again, as we saw with kind of Celsius and, uh, and some of the other earlier ones, this is a process that might take a couple of months for, you know, for people basically to run out of, out of room to run, you know, and then finally have to acknowledge this. We've already started to see some players do this. BlockFi notably came out and, you know, they're not insolvent, but they have, or at least they're not acknowledging insolvency, but they have frozen withdrawals. They have stopped operation in sort of the way that they were operating before. I expect that we will see more of that. It's a very dangerous time to be out there in the crypto space right now because we don't really understand the web of connections that ultimately will wind up unwinding as a result of all of this stuff that's going on. Zach? Yeah, that's, I mean, something that, you know, DeFi adherents are out there, you know, sounding the alarm, right? This is a CFI problem. This is not an on-chain problem. These are CFI black boxes that ultimately obscure, obfuscate, and hide some of these risky business practices that they've undertaken, whether it's crypto lenders that we've seen falter in the past or Alameda in this instance, which seems to have led to the downfall of FTX, which was emerging as a highly trusted brand in the crypto space. And now we've seen it here on a Friday file for bankruptcy. Pretty crazy stuff. And I think the BlockFi news from last night, immediately halting operations, suggests that there may be a couple other notable CFI players who face similar fates because they were tied up in FTX here in these last few months. Jen, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm just going to repeat kind of what I said yesterday, a public service announcement. If you have funds on a centralized exchange and are worried right now, get yourself a hardware wallet, hold your own coins, wait out the storm. It's if you if you are afraid, do that. It is not difficult to do, very easy to set up, and there's lots of information out there. All right, we'll move on to our next story, but but Jen, I just wanted to mention that, uh, unfortunately, in the current situation that we're in right now, that advice is actually the type of, that's exactly the action that will catalyze further failures faster. So in some ways, it's good because it means that the pain will, again, be understood to be sooner. But again, it also just like there's no right moves to make at this particular moment. The time to make those moves was a while ago. But uh, building on Zach's comments for our next story, let's step away from the drama of the moment and turn to the recurring theme in many of the largest recent collapses. Coindesk has a new opinion piece out from Amanda Cassett that reads in part, in an echo of the 2008 financial crisis, the collapse of FTX has triggered a run on the banks across crypto markets. Despite sector-wide sell-offs, Uniswap, Balancer, Curve, and other decentralized exchanges or DEXs and decentralized finance platforms have been functioning smoothly, enabling users to buy and sell their assets even amid the turmoil. Traders may have seen their portfolios decrease in dollar value, but they never lost access. If that isn't consumer protection, I don't know what is, end quote. I think that this is a really central point, although not without its own nuances and challenges. Exchanges like FTX are better in lots of ways when times are good, but when things start to go wrong, that lack of persistent, unavoidable transparency lets them avoid public awareness of it, which means the problem can often grow from something that's very small and manageable up front until it drags customers down into the giant hole with them. 
Zach, Nephi has its own downsides, obviously, here, but at least this isn't one of them. What's your read here? And is this is this or is there any solution to this type of problem that exists out there in the world today? I think this is a fine thesis, and this may be a fine silver lining of the collapses that we've seen in recent months. But I think, by and large, most people interact with the crypto economy through centralized players such as Coinbase, FTX, Kraken, Binance, you name it, right? So in some future state, I think there is a robust DeFi ecosystem that gets us away from this interstitial phase of like all the bad stuff from TradFi with additional risks associated with crypto (laughs) and to like all the good stuff associated with truly decentralized finance. And again, peer-to-peer internet commerce without the need for intermediaries beyond a smart contract that you're interacting with on the internet, right? So I think there may be some end state in which this plays out in its ideal form. But right now, I think we've seen such a hurdle toward mainstream adoption of these on-chain tools that if you were to sort of poll, I don't know, I would guess, say, 7 out of 10 active crypto users, most of them are going through these trusted third parties that they use to interface with some of these on-chain products. So I think that long run, again, I think this is the appropriate thesis to be pushing right now. Hey, you know, this is another example of why DeFi might be better in most instances. But again, those hurdles around self-custody, those hurdles around smart contract exploits, and other tomfoolery in the in the Web3 space, those things loom large as it relates to getting more people using these things as they were intended to be used, rather than going through these trusted middlemen who provide access to some of these tools. So yeah, fingers crossed. But again, as I mentioned yesterday, I don't know if, my, if I'm holding my breath. I don't, see we're gonna, I don't think we're going to see a stampede to DeFi just yet, but maybe it would be great if ultimately we did. Jen? I think Vitalik tweeted a few months back, we spoke about it on this show, that maybe we're just trying to achieve that mainstream adoption and onboard this next billion users too quickly. And that's why we're seeing all of these problems. I don't think he said exactly that's why we're seeing all these problems, but that's what I kind of deduce from that statement. I think we should continue building these products, solving problems that exist in the real world, solving the problems that led to this contagion that we're seeing now. And we don't really need to focus on onboarding the next billion users. I think we need to focus on making sure the technology is secure and usable. And that takes time, right? So I, yeah, I hate to say it, but we should just continue building and not um, kind of encourage everyone to put their money into a system that still has a lot of breakpoints. Adam? Yeah, I, again, like I think as a rule, I think it's really, really hard at any time. Bull markets are not... For me personally, to recommend you know people investing into any of this stuff, I think that again, it's something that as an individual you can make a choice about. But whether it's been in good markets, whether it's been in bad markets, I've always regretted giving any investment advice to anybody in my personal life because then I feel a sense of responsibility to it. That again, oftentimes, like you just need to understand the risks, and it's hard to do that when you're working off a recommendation. So I think the other thing that I want to say here is that. You know, whether we're talking about the cryptocurrency ecosystem or the traditional finance system, you know, really what we're looking at here is is a distinct, I think, repudiation of the efficient capital thesis, right? So the idea that when you have money, you should be deploying it maximally to make as much money with it as possible. I think that what we see in the world of DeFi is that the things that act in that way they're the things that wind up going bust and exploding because the economics support it when it's good and then they implode when it's bad. And you look at projects out there, you know, like MakerDAO, you look at these collateralized, you know, like uh, stablecoin projects where they have 150, 200% 
you know, collateral behind each one of those things. Those are the platforms that have been stable and they provide meaningful value. They're not efficient with capital, but if that means you don't lose everything because either, you know, a smart contract game theory implodes, you know, or one of these exchanges that's just trying to kind of do everything, you know, or fill a hole in a different company as appears to be the case here, you know, like if that happens, then that that's, that's not a good thing. So again, for me, I, I increasingly, as I get older, find myself becoming more and more risk averse and more and more comfortable leaving capital in places where it's not necessarily like earning yield, but at the same time, it's also not at risk if things just happen to go poorly for a couple of days, whether or not I'm paying attention to it, whether or not I'm involved with it. So I think that's, that's what I really hope comes out of this. And again, not just about crypto, this also affects banking. This also affects kind of all of these different places where this is just the, the rule rather than the exception. Zach? Yeah, I think MakerDAO is a fantastic example, right? This is a quiet project that has soldiered on through all sorts of financial crises, both caused by the traditional world and caused by crypto contagion. Stuff like that that is boring, a bit unsexy, a bit inefficient, and also not wound up in the personality cults that we see in this space points to a future where DeFi could be something that is meaningfully important to how you interact with your finances. And I think that dream is still a ways off but that dream is, I think, what motivates a lot of people to continue working in this space, right? Where there are tools on the internet that anyone can use that provide bank-like functionality for managing their finances and growing their wealth. So I think, again, if that's the North Star that I think a lot of people in these bear markets are building toward, I think that's absolutely a noble goal to be reaching for. I hope we see more egalitarian usage of DeFi or widespread usage of DeFi and less of the self-dealing that we've seen in DeFi to date among a small community of power users. So yeah, DeFi remains really, really promising in my opinion, but that's certainly not to say that there aren't challenges ahead to making it work efficiently. Jen, last thoughts on this one? No, I think you summed it up nicely. So here's a big question. What's the most important thing about crypto? It's not transactions per second, it's not convenience, and it's not even smart contracts. It's decentralization to achieve censorship resistance so we can all be free. Minima is a new layer one blockchain designed to run in full on a smartphone so that anyone can participate in building Minima's decentralized network as an equal. Join over 300,000 Minima node runners on the incentive program today to start earning Minima every day until mainnet launch. Get started at Minima.Global. This episode is brought to you by Circle, the sole issuer of USDC and a leader in crypto that's held to a higher standard. USDC is a fast, safe, and efficient way to send money around the globe. USDC is always redeemable one-to-one -one for US dollars and has over $45 billion in circulation as of October 13th, 2022. Plus, Circle posts weekly reserve reports and monthly attestations of reserve capital, letting users know that USDC is safe, transparent, and compliant with regulations. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to see why USDC is a trusted stablecoin. We can move on to the next story, which brings in Sam Bankman-Fried's ethics into question. You know, when things start to fall apart, I think everyone starts talking about every aspect of your life, trying to kind of figure out who you were as a person. This story published on Coindesk points to that uh, apartment in the Bahamas that Sam Bankman-Fried was very vocal about living in with all of his roommates. 
Reports are questioning what the dynamics were between the roommates. According to a source who spoke to Coindesk under anonymity, the whole operation was run by a gang of kids. That is a quote. They said that it was a place full of conflicts of interest, nepotism, and lack of oversight. These people also allege that SPF and Alameda CEO Caroline Ellison dated at times. So a lot of allegations in here by staff members of the various companies that Sam Bankman-Fried was involved in. Adam, I'm going to pass this off to you. What do you make from these allegations? I mean, I, I think you said it, you know, like at a time like this, now everyone is trying to, you know, where, where somebody who was really held in high esteem by much of the industry has really seen just a massive, just unprecedented fall from grace. <laughs> uh, like, I think that at times like this, people look around and try to explain that. The reality of it is, is that, you know, like when I was in my 20s, I made a lot of dumb decisions. And I think a lot of us did. And so the idea, again, that a lot of the folks who are kind of behind the operations over at FTX and affiliated companies were, in fact, very young, that really means that they didn't have a lot of experience in the real world. You know, and we live in markets today. We live in a world today that's driven largely by mania because the destruction of money that's going on all around us, not a new phenomenon, something that's been going on for literally my entire life. Uh, and, you know, and I think that that's true for, for kind of most people who are involved in these types of markets. And it's certainly true for people like Sam Bankman-Fried and the cohort that he surrounded himself with. So, you know, I, I uh, on the one hand, can really heavily sympathize. And on the other hand, just given the stakes of the game that they were playing, you know, it, it presents, I mean, really, the thing that I question is the investors who backed these types of projects, who backed these types of people, and who now find themselves with a very awkward explanation that they need to make. And this is not just venture capitalists. Again, like the Ontario Teachers Fund, I believe, you know, was in like a pension fund, a number of pension funds were involved, you know, with evaluations, you know, investing in valuations that were in the tens of billions of dollars into these things. That's not intelligent investing, that's FOMOing, that's following sort of like, uh, you know, trying to, to grab for yield. And on the one side, that is the responsibility of the fiduciaries who make those investing decisions. And on the other side, it's the fault of the kind of folks who manage the money out there, right? The central banks, the governments who like create the environment into which we all have to kind of find our ways and into which a company like FTX was able to find an incredibly lucrative business line that powered it for a very long time. Again, if markets had realistic interest rates when they should have over the last 20 years, then this wouldn't have happened. Even something like Bitcoin wouldn't be particularly interesting because if the money that we had wasn't devaluing so fast, you wouldn't need something where the whole advantage of Bitcoin or a money like it is that you don't have to trust anybody to make good decisions, right? Like that's the problem underlying this is, you know, like, these are all symptoms of this much larger thing that's going on in our world today. So I don't see that going away. But the particulars of the story I did find to be disturbing. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. Zach? I mean, I like some spicy details as much as the next guy. But I think the thing here is that, you know, everyone loves a winner, right? And when, the, at the, when it hits the fan, details like this start to emerge. And people who are previously held in high regard as geniuses, as iconoclasts, as those who are bucking the trend and finding new ways to advance the conversation forward are then seen in an entirely different light. And I think the media kind of needs to look at itself in the creation of these heroes that are built up only to be torn down. And I think there needs to be some soul searching around that. Maybe it's part of the human condition. Maybe it's at the root of how we find narratives in this world. But it is remarkable that these sort of archetypes seem to emerge over and over and over again in different contexts as new and novel as cryptocurrency 
and all sorts of crazy things. But anyway, that's just some big behind the sky thoughts about a story that was otherwise definitely interesting to read. Jen, what do you got? Yeah, I, Adam, I had much the same thoughts of you when I was reading this. I, I was thinking, you know, why, why would we all trust a 20 something year old to, to do these grand things that we spoke about so often? And I think that we are all a little bit guilty of propping up these types of people and then, and then tearing them down. I, I did a lot of reflection over the past week too about my, my 20s and, you know, maybe some of the decisions that I would have made. And it is unfortunate that, unfortunate that this person had so much power and the decisions that, you know, we made in our 20s were definitely had a different impact than the decisions that some of these people in these positions make. And I think that we need to do a better job at making them aware of that, right? Making these people more aware of the responsibility and the knock-on effect of their decisions. And it's just, I don't know, I, I feel so much empathy and sadness for the people who are affected by this. And I, I also, I, I know we keep saying Sam Bankman-Fried made a lot of really bad business decisions, but I, I feel a lot of empathy for him because I can only hope that he thought he was doing the right thing in the moment and it's all come crashing down. And I don't know how he can carry that on his shoulders. Adam? Yeah, so two things here. So I think that we actually don't know if he made a lot of really bad business decisions or just one that got out of control. The, my sense, and again, we do not know this yet, but again, like what, what can often happen with these types of situations is that you cheat a little bit to save yourself from some trouble, right? So let's say that, again, completely hypothetically, that you know, sister firm Alameda Research had a $50 million hole that they needed to fill. Well, so you transfer over as a temporary loan that $50 million, but that doesn't patch the hole. That $50 million is gone now. Now you've used customer funds and it's gone. So do you admit that or do you continue to pour customer funds down the hole? And at what point do you realize, hey, I should stop because this isn't working and it's actually going to make the fallout much worse? That's kind of my sense. Again, just intuition here in terms of what may have happened. And that wouldn't necessarily speak to making a lot of bad decisions. That would speak to making one progressive decision that many, many people have made in the past of trying to solve something that seems simple at the time, but actually winding up making the problem much worse. The, the second point that I'd like to make here is just that, you know, to the point about like, uh, you know, like the, the kind of uh, cult, uh, you know, hero type of thing that tends to happen. My sense of that is that this has a lot to do with the fact that this technology is first complex and second, like we don't really know what's going to happen with it. Everything is speculative. So rather than creating our own thesis, it becomes very tempting instead to find people who we identify as very smart which often is analogized by how much money a person has, and then just to follow that. And so that seems to me, and then of course that gives them more power, that makes it so they have more opportunities to become more wealthy and more important. And eventually, ultimately we find out that everybody is just people and people make mistakes and those mistakes can compound at a very fast rate, especially when you're talking about stuff at the scale at which this particular operation was operating at. So again, like I, you know, I basically agree with all the points here. <laughs> it's a complex situation. We're not going to know everything that's happened. You know, if we do find out that actually, like Celsius, they had made a bad decision, you know, years ago uh, and had basically been trying to dig themselves out of it ever since, then that'll be one thing. But I also won't be surprised if this was actually like a, a near-term thing that just got away really, really fast and caused all of the chaos that we're seeing now today. It works until it doesn't. And I think that was something that was said often with the Terra and Luna collapse. 
And for it to happen with FTX, I think is especially remarkable. It worked until it didn't, and it failed rapidly. And now here on this Friday, FTX is in Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. And it's pretty crazy. It's been a crazy week. Crazy week to see this all unfold. Some really great reporting out there by Coindesk and others in the space. Big bravo to them for advancing this story minute by minute, hour by hour, in what has been a wild story to watch. So bravo to the journalists out there. Thanks for getting this information out into the market. And it's always good to see Coindesk leading the charge. All right, that's it for the show today. I'm Zach Seward. That's Adam. That's Jen. You're watching The Hash. Thanks for bearing with us this week. It's been a wild one. Hope you're doing well. Hope you have a nice weekend. Go touch some grass. All right, bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 